how can you be part of a religious community that straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers i would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against some churches still the one they claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually It seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical than they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And this is my first episode in a while because my second book, The Joy of Letting Go, came out January 3rd. The Joy of Letting Go, How One Thing Has the Power to Change Everything. I released an interview I did with a good friend of mine, Kevin Livermore, back in California when the book came out. I released one more episode after that, and then... I haven't released one, I think, for about three weeks, so I'm back, and it's good to be back, and I'm happy to get back in a flow for the rest of the year. It's amazing. I think this is the 87th episode, I believe. Yeah, I think it's 87 episodes, which is a decent little body of work when it comes to a podcast. I'm sure there's statistics. Maybe I've read one before, but I forget about you know, most podcasts don't make it past episode X, whether it's five or 10, I'm not sure. And in my life and in your life, consistency, continuing to show up is almost everything. I remember years ago, my wife and I, maybe we had one kid at the point, I can't, maybe we only had Michaela, I'm not sure, but we were walking up to this park in, in Hawaii here in this neighborhood called Kaimuki. We're going to walk up to this park for this sunset. And for some reason, aphorisms, these short phrases, I love words. And sometimes I intentionally think about them when I'm writing. Like, how do I finish this section with a very succinct, clever, interesting line? But other times, whether it's moments of silence, moments of reflection, whatever it is, like lines just come to me. And as I that sunset was happening or I was walking back down this little hill, I had this thought. Grace is just about sticking around. How powerful is that? You know, the people in your life, the people who love you, the people who know you, the people who see you, the people who you are that for. It isn't about being perfect. Grace is just about sticking around. And in the same way, when it comes to creativity and contributions, you know, greatness is just a, for is just those who keep doing it and keep going. So consistency is powerful. I love to see that. I'm grateful for the past year, two years, two and a half years or so since I started this. I'm grateful for the episodes I've put out. I'm grateful for the people who listen in. I'm grateful for the connections that I've made. It's been a really powerful thing. So I guess I'm starting this off. And this is, I think, my first episode like this, my first personal episode of the year. So I'm grateful. My second book's out. I'm grateful to be doing this. So yes, one more thing before I get into this episode. 
The book's out. If you haven't got that, go get that. The Joy of Letting Go, how one thing has the power to change everything. For me, it's one of the most obvious and insightful and important truths that lurks just beneath the surface of all of our lives, how letting go is that which maintains the flow of everything we do. And also, I am working on and I will be coming out with a new website soon. And that website will give people insight into the things I have going on this year. What am I doing now that Imagine's over? And I you know, took some time to rest last year, right? I'm writing. Hopefully, we'll be doing some more traveling. And there's some other offerings I will be offering that once that's launched and there's a pathway to make it happen for people, I have some interesting and exciting things to announce, so stay tuned for all of that. Perhaps it will give some of us a chance to connect personally in ways that we never have. We'll see where all of this goes. And let's get into this episode. I don't have a name for it yet. I am going to talk about it, and when I, after this, make the little, or I have a little template when I come out with episodes and I just have to punch in like the title and the episode number. I'm going to come up with the title after, but it's about journaling and it's about the evolving nature of consciousness in the Bible. It's about how human beings keep changing and how it appears that God's changing in the Bible and how when you how see how all of this is connected to me the Bible makes even more sense and it gives us even more permission to keep growing and changing and evolving in our life. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to begin here. Let's imagine for a second that we are reading a journal entry from yours from seven years ago. So if you're 25, when you were, I'm so bad at math, 18, if you're 30, when you were 23, if you're 35, when you were 28, right? We can do all, if you're 42, it's when you were 35. We can do the math for everybody. I stopped paying attention to math in fifth grade, so you might need to do that for me. But let's imagine for a second that we're reading a journal entry from you, right? You're writing about love, assuming you journal. And if not, you can still you do the imaginative exercise, right? You're writing about love. You're writing about God. You're writing about relationships. You're writing about how Von Dutch is such a cool company because, I don't know, it's 2006 or five at the time, whenever it was big. Everything you write is a reflection of what you believe about God, what you believe about reality, what you believe about humanity, what you believe about yourself. So all of that explicitly or implicitly is all flowing through the pages. Now, let's say you jump four years ahead from there. You're still writing about God. You're still writing about love. You're still writing about relationships. Would the way you write and think about this, would the way that you write and think about love, life, and God be different? Right. That's a four year jump right there. Right. Maybe if we were to look at those journal entries, it looks like the God you're referring to has changed. Maybe it looks like your understanding of relationships have changed. Maybe it looks like the nature of love has changed. Maybe it looks like the nature of work has changed. And here's my question. If we were to see that, would that be because God changed or because you have. 
Would the way you write and think about love, life, and God be different because God's changed and love has changed? Or is it because you've changed? Right? And let's say if we jumped all the way ahead to right now in your journal and you're still writing about love, life, God, and relationships. And if it was today, and if someone were to read your journals, it would look to them, maybe if someone were to come across your journals now compared to, you know, five, seven years ago, 10 years ago, it would look to them like the God you were writing to and the God that you were writing about is changing, right? What once was a more distant God who only showed up in your life sometimes seems to be a much more intimate God who is closer and perhaps always present and always at work in your life, right? God is changing in how you relate to him. The angry God you used to deal with where you would worry, if I didn't do my devotions, is God upset with me? This angry, distant God that you used to try to appease, where you would try to stay on his good side if you, by doing the right things, by avoiding negative things, right? This angry God now, 15, 10 years later, seems to be nicer and more gracious and more forgiving. Or maybe the exclusive God seems to be more inclusive. Maybe the simple God of black and white seems to be more complex and seems to move and dance in a world of color. Right? Maybe, I mean, how many people would say even from one year ago to today, your understanding of God has grown and changed, right? Think about your journal, 2009, seven years later, five years later, two years later till now, right? If, would we see a different God? Would we see a different understanding of humanity? Would we see a different understanding of community there? And if your view of God changed that much in seven years or 15 years or even one year, Let's think about the Bible. Wouldn't it make sense if a group of people's view of God changes over a thousand years, which the Bible's written on different in different countries and different continents by different people over a period of over a thousand years? Wouldn't it make sense if their view of God changed in that much time? Right? It would be weird and developmentally inappropriate if it didn't change. Right? You have this journal that reveals not a God who is changing, but it reveals that you are changing and your understanding of God and humanity and reality is changing. And that is reflected by the seemingly growing nature of God in your journals. Now, what if the Bible works the same way as your old journals, right? The great theologian Marcus Borg says the Bible is a human product. It tells us how our religious ancestors saw things, not how God sees things. Right? We're not talking about whether or not the Bible is inspired. We're not talking about whether or not we can relate to it as a sacred document. We, we're not talking about whether or not we're able to see it as this grand cosmic narrative that we live out in our own lives. No, it can be all of those things. But Marcus Borg is making the point that the Bible is a human product. He says it tells us how our religious ancestors saw things, not how God sees things. Just like your journal tells you how tells us how you 
saw things, not how God sees things, right? Do you see those connections right there? So what if the Bible shows us a group of people who are all on a journey of discovery with God? What if it's not God who is changing? It is the people who are changing and growing and allowing their understanding of God to evolve as they evolve. Although so many Christians see change as dangerous, right? Your view of God changes, it's dangerous. Your understanding of Jesus changes, that's dangerous. It's a threat to the truth. What if the Bible actually provides us with an unfolding story that shows us what it looks like for people to change and to allow their understanding of God to change over time? Maybe it's not dangerous if your view of God is changing. Maybe it's dangerous if it isn't. And so let's I'm sure there's many more examples than this that people can come up with, but I'm just going to show you a few examples from the Bible that perhaps, and I think do, reveal to us a God who appears to be changing because what we're seeing is people who are changing over time, and thus people's understanding of God is changing over time. So I'm going to look, I first saw this movement from this great, it's a short book on Jesus. It's one of my favorite books on Jesus. And it's really simple, easy to read. And it's called Selling Water by the River by Shane Hips. And he pointed this out. So this, I get this movement from him. But he shows this movement from Deuteronomy 23.1 to Isaiah 56.3-5 to Acts 8. So, I th- and I think it's about from 1300 BC to about 500 BC between Deuteronomy 23 and Acts 8. Or, or uh, to Isaiah 56 and then to Acts 8 after Jesus. So let me read Deut- Deuteronomy 23.1. So we're talking about eunuchs right now and we see some changes along the way. Deuteronomy 23.1. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, that is what you think it is, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain. So let no one who has been emasculated, they're talking about eunuchs, let no one who has been emasculated. So what they're saying is let no eunuch, no eunuch may enter the assembly of the Lord. So eunuchs, Deuteronomy 23.1, appears to be a clear commandment, right? No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. It is clear, like somehow some people relate to the Bible. The Bible says it, that settles it. It's black and white. The command is right there. Let's jump ahead. I think it's about 800 years. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says, right? So the prophet Isaiah is saying, this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs, remember those people who hundreds of years before could not enter the assembly of the Lord. And I believe they, whoever's saying that believes that's what they're saying that because God said it, God means that, right? They're speaking for God. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them, I will give within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. It's beautiful. So the eunuch 
who could not enter the assembly of the Lord. Now the writer is saying, the Lord says, well, if the eunuch keeps my Sabbath, not only will I give them space within my temple and walls, I'm going to give them a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So first, it's a no. Second, well, if you keep the Sabbath, then a name that lasts forever. That is not the same, is it? Right? You don't have to, you don't have, to have a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in philosophy to understand that someone saying, hey, those people can't come in and hey, if they follow the Sabbath, they're going to be, they can come in and be given an everlasting name. You, it's not that hard to tell that those are different. Then you jump ahead again, Acts 8. After Jesus, the new church is growing. It's expanding, you know, through the Mediterranean. It's growing and it keeps expanding. And in Acts 8, you have this really amazing story of this Ethiopian eunuch reading the some scroll of Isaiah, which is funny, the Isaiah scroll is the one that talks about how eunuchs will be given an everlasting name. We don't know. We It's just this really amazing thing. I'm not saying they were reading that one, but it's a fascinating thing. Philip comes, interprets for them. The eunuch's like, what would stop me from getting baptized right now? Philip's like, um, nothing, baptized on the spot. And if you look at church legend, church history, however you see it, the Ethiopian church is one of the oldest churches present in this world, to my understanding. And I think some of the people there trace the origin of their faith, of their connection with the Jesus story back to this eunuch. I'm not saying that that exactly happened, but I believe there are stories about how there's a connection there. We see a journey where the eunuch in the Bible moves from being forbidden to being welcomed and ultimately to being baptized. This is where for some people who grew up with a very specific way of reading the Bible have their brains exploding inside their heads. Is God's perspective on eunuchs changing or is the people's perspective on God changing, which then reflects how they relate to the eunuch. I'll tell you another short one. Hosea 2.16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. So the, 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 the prophet Hosea is saying that this is that the, the Lord, that God is declaring this. And he's saying that God says, you will, in that day, look into the future, you or whenever it is, you will call me husband. You will no longer call me my master, which was the word Baal or Baal, however people pronounce that, which was, you know, one of the sort of well-known gods around the, the community and the, the, the geography at that time. They used to see God as master, but now they're supposed to see him as husband. That is a drastically different relationship. That is an entirely different way of relating to the divine from a master to husband, from property to covenant and shaped love. That is a very different thing. They used to see God as distant, controlling and manipulative, but now they're able to see God as close, loving and faithful. Their understanding of and relationship with God is changing. And here, because the prophet said in that day declares the Lord, 
So God's saying this. So their relationship with God is changing and God is the one who's initiating the change. The people aren't just evolving haphazardly. God is actually the very initiator calling them forward in their understanding of God so they can relate to God in a brand new way. And they can relate to God in a brand new way because he's inviting them to see him in a brand new way. Baal reflects and expresses old ways of viewing God. Baal represents a less evolved way of viewing God, but God's calling them to new ways. Hosea said to the people, God is better than that. A couple more, because it's just so interesting to see this. Matthew 5.38, Jesus has this famous line in the Sermon on the Mount. You heard it said, but I say. You heard it said this, but I say this. Oh, you heard it said that, but I say this, right? There's a, this movement forward of, of, of us growing and experiencing transformation and how we see God in reality. There's this movement that's necessary where we talk about this phrase transcending and including. You transcend old ways of seeing. It means you grow beyond that, but you include that within yourself and you include the seeing that you learn from those places within you. It's like a rungs on a ladder. You know, you transcend it, but you include it because it's a part of your story. It's a part of your evolving way of seeing. Some people first heard that from Richard Rohr. You know, that comes before Richard Rohr, I believe, from Ken Wilbert's transcending and including is the very way the universe itself expands and evolves. And it's the same thing for human beings. We transcend all ways of seeing and we include those parts of it within our unfolding story, right? You don't transcend it and reject it and get mad at the old. You transcend it, but include it because of that seeing back there was necessary. Like steps 22 and 23 were necessary for you to finally get to 29 and 30. You don't have to reject those parts of you. You don't have to reject the people who are there. You can disagree with them. You can transcend the way you used to see, but now you can just say, I'm going to keep going and I can accept that I used to be at those stages on my journey. It's very simple, actually. A little harder to experience, but simple conceptually. For me, this certain moment of, of, of Jesus's life is a giant transcending and including moment for the people of God. You heard it said, it's where we were. But I say, now we're transcending. Not doing away with the old not rejecting everything from the law, not rejecting everything the prophets said, not rejecting everything in the Torah. No, you heard it said, we're building on that. We're going beyond it now. But I say this, it's we're transcending the law. We're transcending these old ways of seeing. We're going to include them within us. It's a part of our sacred lineage, but we are going to keep growing. Jesus himself is saying, you heard it said, or you know, within that, you believe this because you heard it said, but I say this and now we can believe this. It's a growing way of seeing. And I'll end with this part right here because I want to see like we're seeing the way of seeing eunuchs. We're seeing Hosea 2.16, how we change, how we see God initiated by God. We see Jesus inviting us to grow. And for the Apostle Paul, one of the great leaders of the early church, there's an interesting thing from him too. Galatians 1, 13 through 16. Paul writes, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous 
or the tr- traditions of my father's. He's like, I was the the I was the Jew of all Jews, meaning I took the law seriously. I studied it. I was really in it, right? I was the one who was the most focused on it. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, verse 15, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son, right? Paul has this profound awakening experience with the resurrected Christ, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. The, here's an important word in this, in this text is reveal. So Paul believed in God passionately, right? Even before his encounter with the resurrected Christ, he's like, I'm the ultimate Jew. I've taken the Torah, the law seriously. And then God revealed himself more, uncovered himself, turned the lights on so he could see him with more clarity and his view of God was radically changed. Paul went from a narrow and exclusive view of God that came from his tradition to a wider and more inclusive view that was revealed in Jesus. Remember, Paul was the most committed, devout, and faithful believer you could imagine. He was completely certain of what he believed. But when God revealed himself to him in an unexpected way, he realized he was wrong, that his view of God was incomplete, and it was limited, and he needed to grow in his understanding of God. Besides Jesus, the most influential voice in the history of our faith, and perhaps in the Bible as well, became who he was and did what he did because he allowed his view of God to change. Paul was not converted from believer to unbeliever. He simply took a massive evolutionary step forward because of what God revealed to him in Jesus. Paul did not go from unbeliever to believer. He went from this is how I've seen God to this is how I see God now. I'm transcending my old ways of seeing and I'm going to continue to grow. Let's stop right there with you know, the, going back to the scriptures. You actually see the scriptures themselves evolving in their view of God and humanity. Is Here's the question. Is God changing? Or are the writers, the actors in the story, the leaders in the early church, Jesus, or are, is people's understanding of God changing? Right? What exactly is happening in all of these texts? Is the Bible contradicting itself? What are we supposed to do when we acknowledge that the scriptures are the source of truth and you have people writing it saying that God wants different things? Is God changing his mind? Does God change? I mean, most people would agree on an absolute level that God does not change. But if he doesn't, then what are we supposed to do with all of this? If God is not changing, then it's possible that what we see in the Bible is a forward movement that puts on display how the people of God's understanding of God actually changes, grows, and evolves over time. It's not God who changes. It's us. Remember what Marcus Borg said, the Bible is a human product. It tells us how our religious ancestors saw things, not how God sees things. Just like your journal. Your journal is a human product. It tells us how you see things, not how God sees things. We see 
God changing in your journal because it's not that God's changing, it's that you're changing. And perhaps the Bible works in a very, very similar way. First of all, that is just so amazing to see that. I really believe that. It's so liberating for our own growth. It makes so much sense of the Bible. Like, doesn't that help us make so much sense of problematic, weird, strange, dangerous, violent, disgusting, despicable, embarrassing stories in the Bible? Right? All of the violence we see that was ordered by God, right? God telling people to kill hundreds of thousands of people and pillage and conquer other territories and villages, which there are stories like that, right? What do you do with that story? But think about what we talked about today. Did God say that? Or did the people thousands of years ago assume God was on their side in their violent conquest of new land because that's how they saw God and they could not imagine a God who did not support and condone their violence. Did God tell the people to commit violence to other human beings? Or did, does it show us that people at that point in human history believed in a God who told them to kill? Right? God killing people? Or did they still believe in an angry, vindictive God who would kill people on the spot if they disobeyed or did something wrong? Think about that evolutionary growing in your journal way of understanding the Bible. It helps. It, ma it makes the Bible make sense on so many levels. So when someone says, what do you, what about, you know, how can you worship a God who told you, who told the people to kill hundreds of thousands of people back then? You say, well, that might have been how people understood and saw God back then, but that wasn't how people understood and saw God, say, the ones who were following Jesus. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say this. It's not how we see it today. Maybe back then was not an expression of what God wanted from them. It was an expression of what they wanted from God, a God on their side who supports and condones all of their conquest and violent sort of movements. And another part is the church, just like you see in the Bible, the church or you as a person is, you're supposed to be changing. You're supposed to be growing. You're supposed to be evolving in your understanding of God, right? What makes people think the goal of Christianity is to get everything figured out in the secure, tight little package, never change and to spend the rest of your life defending that thing? Where do we, I mean, there's reasons why that is, but that's not what this is. We are not supposed to be remaining static in our understanding of God. And the Bible does not remain static in its understanding of God, right? The God of the conquest in the Old Testament. And now we see God revealed in Jesus calling us to love our enemies, calling us to this creative form of nonviolence, calling us to resist the empire with nonviolence to challenge things without attacking them and mirroring our enemies' violence and hatred and anger, right? And Jesus, Jesus makes us look at humanity and say, we've come a long way. We used to need God to support us in all of our violence. And people still want that today. You, you still see those 
backwards, 3,000-year-old, magical, mythical, fundamentalist, violent, I want God on my side for my conquesting reasons, you still see that understanding of God at work today. Watch the news. Pay attention to politics. Pay attention to who's using the name of God and what they're using it for. We still want God to support whatever it is we do. Some of us are still back there. That's a problem. But in Jesus, you can say, man, we've come a long, long way, and God is still calling us into that path. So, man, I was, um, to me, seeing the Bible through this, your, the Bible is like your journal. And when you see it like that, it just makes sense of so much. It helps me love the Bible and you know, appreciate what it is to know what it's not and to see the radical forward oriented nature of the spirit that was calling humanity forward there and is still calling us forward today. Man, that's, that's amazing. And also, I think the evolving of humanity in the Bible is one giant permission slip for all of us to keep growing and evolving as well. So, Yes, that's what we're talking about today. The Bible, evolution, your old journals, and why this all makes so much sense. So let's keep growing. Let's keep doing this together. Let's keep loving God, allowing ourselves to be loved by God. Let's keep loving our neighbors. And let's know that the future the Spirit is inviting us into is always bigger, better, and beyond the past that so many people are trying to keep us stuck in.